Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. This podcast grew out of my work as a corporate chaplain for a large construction company. My job was designed to help meet the spiritual needs of our associates and their families who may or may not have connection with the traditional religious community. Those spiritual needs may arise on the job or at home or in life in the community. These are issues that all of us face, so I hope that what I present here from week to week will be relevant to everyone who finds their way to this podcast. Whoever you are, whatever stage of life you are at, you're welcome here. Now this week I'll be focusing on a topic that relates directly to our work life. I want to embark on the perilous task of looking into the future, trying to envision what work will look like. What will our jobs, occupations, or professions, or however you like to characterize your work, what will it look like in the future? How might these changes affect you or your children? Then I'll try to suggest some ways that we can prepare for that future. The Bible presents us with many perspectives on the working life, from the curse that resulted from the sin of Adam and Eve, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, that's Genesis 3.19, to an obligation to society, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, from 2 Thessalonians 3.10. And finally, to a source of joy as a gift from God. There's nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment for their toil. Ecclesiastes 2.24 Just as the Bible seems ambivalent about work, our attitudes toward our employment can vary from job to job and even day to day according to our circumstances and how things are going. Well, let's engage in a little thought experiment together. Imagine that you live in a world without work. The dream of technological advancement for the good of humankind has been fully and finally realized. Artificial intelligence, or AI as it's called, combined with robotics, provide all the labor and services necessary for their human counterparts' survival and enjoyment. The feared machine apocalypse in which robots enslave humans did not materialize. When you get sick, which is rare because as a child you'd been given anti-disease and anti-aging injections, you simply receive a diagnosis and treatment from a remote AI-powered robot. You have unlimited access to any food or drink you like 24-7 which had been grown, processed, and delivered to your door by totally automated systems. You don't even have to make choices because your every need and want has been anticipated by computing devices using perfectly designed algorithms based on your physiology, personality, and past behavior. The world outside your door, should you choose to go outside, has become a veritable Disneyland of entertainment and activities. You could also stay home and engage in an endless variety of activities through computer-generated virtual realities. For the true nature lover, you can travel expense-free to pristine natural habitats 
that have been pre preserved in their original state to observe real animal and plant life in a Garden of Eden type setting. You don't even have to vote because a globalized system of human management has been optimized by commuter, computers. These computers and robotics remain maintain and improve themselves to adapt to environmental changes. Everything is free. If you truly feel an urge to work, you can participate in simulate, simulated work environments of your choice where you can excel at the job of your dreams. And by the way, no need for school. Your entire education and intellectual development were pre-programmed into your brain within hours of your birth. The world, as they say, is your oyster. Your time is your own. Your leisure, unlimited. As the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, everything has been figured out, except how to live. So what do you do with your life? Imagine. Just imagine. There's a word for the world I just described. It's utopia. The idea of a life in a perfect world is hardly a new concept. Thomas More wrote his book, Utopia, From Whence the Word Comes, in 1516, way back in the time of King Henry VIII of England. Here's More's description of the perfect world. The utopians lived together in patriarchal families with no fewer than 10 and no more than 16 members, not counting children. All utopians work at both farming and at least one other craft, and they work about six hours a day. When the utopians are not working, eating, or sleeping, they're free to use their time as they please. There are few laws in utopia, and lawyers are banned from the commonwealth for being too cunning in their interpretations of the law. The only offense for which there is a prescribed punishment is adultery. A person who commits adultery once is forced into bondage, and a person who commits the offense twice is sentenced to death. Now, that sounds like a pretty balanced life. And this was written before the Industrial Revolution, when the introduction of, the machine, of machine labor presented the possibility of a future where even the six-hour workday could be reduced or even eliminated. Karl Marx built his vision of a communist world on a similar utopian model. Of course, that has not worked out very well. Achieving that benevolent society was not as easy as Marx supposed. Unpredictable human behavior has gotten in the way of a perfect world. Political scientists have pretty much written off a utopian future to the extent that the word has become synonymous with an unrealistic or fairy tale future. One of the most influential economists of all time, John Maynard Keynes, had made a more modest and probably realistic vision of what work would look like in the future. In 1930, Keynes predicted that within 100 years, technological progress would lead to a world of three-hour shifts and 15-hour work weeks. That still may seem like fairy tale, a fairy tale to those of us who st still are working 40-hour weeks, uh, work weeks at a minimum. But worldwide, the number of hours that the average person works 
has been steadily declining for 50 years. The opposite extreme of a utopian future is a dystopian one. Now, if you've gone to many futuristic sci-fi movies in the past 40 years, you witnessed the imaginings of a dimly lit, overly industrialized, crowded, crime-ridden world where human beings scratch out their mean existence. The environment and civilization have collapsed into a new dark age. I would reckon that dystopian novels and movies outnumber that the utopian ones at least 100 to 1. We're kind of pessimistic about the future. Come to think of it, I can't think of one truly utopian novel or movie at all. But I'm here to cheer you up today. Let's put that dystopian funk aside. The path to a modern world really opened up with the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Machines that took the place of human toil were promised to make life better for workers. Workers weren't so sure about that and resisted the change. Inventors of the new labor-saving machines were threatened and sometimes killed for their efforts long before the Industrial Revolution. The scribes, who feared being replaced by the invention of the printing press, said that only the devil himself could produce so many copies of a book so swiftly. When Hart, John Hargreave invented the cotton jinny that could spin cotton more efficiently than human hands, he was rewarded by mobs ransacking his home and destroying his invention and everything else in his house. Almost every technological advance has been met with skepticism if not outright violence. Think of the anxiety being expressed about the explosion of the Internet and the information age, especially by those of us who can remember a day before handheld devices went with us everywhere. In his book, A World Without Work, Daniel Susskind talks about what he calls automation anxiety. The fear that we're going to be replaced by machines and left jobless or forced into jobs that we wouldn't otherwise have chosen. Automation anxiety at the time of the Industrial Revolution turned out to be justified. Workers was displaced from their admittedly hard labor on farms into meaningless and repetitive work in dangerous and unhealthy factories located in equally dangerous and unhealthy cities. Mechanization came with an unexpected human price. Nevertheless, in the past two centuries, it has led to an immense increase in, in production. Globally, the GWP, which stands for Global World Product, has seen continual increase. Today, the annual share of the GWP for each person on earth is $10,720 per year based on a GWP of $80.7 divided by 7.53 billion people on earth. That may seem like a minimal annual salary to live on in our context, but it seems wholly adequate when we consider the billions of people worldwide living in abject poverty at a mere fraction of that, on the edge of survival. The good news is, industrialization and technology have created a world where there is enough to go around. We just haven't figured out a successful political formula so that everyone gets a fair or at least 
adequate share of the wealth. But that could happen. Focusing back on our local situation, all sorts of workers are facing automation anxiety today. Our anxiety has been increased by the COVID-19 pandemic because it has intensified the need to perform tasks with less human interaction and contact. The supply chain through which we receive our consumer goods and upon which factories rely to receive their materials has invested and continue to invest heavily in technology that require fewer and fewer workers. Consequently, people who work in brick-and-mortar stores have lost their jobs. Apps that put food delivery at our fingertips with a tap of the iPhone screen have been displaced, have displaced restaurant servers. And have you noticed? Some grocery stores have totally eliminated human cashiers. One attendant can oversee a dozen self-serve stations. Jobs aren't just being threatened for less skilled labor either. Virtual medical visits and communication with patients online is quickly reducing the number of office visits and the newfound efficiency may lead these practices to continue post-pandemic. Are you getting anxious yet? A lot of us are. In the U.S., 30% of workers believe their jobs are likely to be replaced by robots and computers in their lifetimes. And that's not just an unjustified opinion. In case I haven't mentioned your job yet, in a recent survey, leading computer scientists made the claim that there is a 50% chance that machines will outperform human beings at every task within 45 years. Beyond my lifetime, but maybe not yours. Susskind, who I quoted earlier, um, has a realistic, I think, assessment. He says, machines will not do everything in the future, but they will do more. And as they slowly but relentlessly take on more and more human tasks, human beings will be forced to retreat to an ever-shrinking set of activities. Eventually, what is left will not be enough to provide everyone who wants it with traditional well-paid employment. I think we will all live to see those effects. In fact, I think we are already. Now that may seem backwards since there is such a shortage of workers, especially in the service sector, as we emerge from the pandemic. But I think this is because of the year-long hiatus from work has led many workers to question the monetary reward for their work which they also find less and less meaningful. And they're being offered extra support by the government uh, through this crisis. There are obvious implications of all of this, which politicians and policymakers are already struggling with. How do we keep the gears of industry and economy grinding through all of these confusing trends? Government is going to have to work with the leaders of business and industry to assure that our production levels continue to rise. At the same time, they'll have to balance business with environmental concerns so that we'll have a livable wor world in which to work in the first place. 
Then as the amount of work required by individuals decreases, as many seem to think it will, how will we equitably divide the bounty of this growth among the massive number of people in the world who don't need to work? Much of that is beyond our control, other than through participation in the democratic process. But as individuals, it is more important than ever for us to develop goals for our work life. If you have many years of work ahead of you, those goals will need to be flexible since the path into the future will be twisty and unpredictable. For many, it means working hard in our present jobs while looking for opportunities to advance and grow in our fields. And if we see a dead end, it may require taking the leap to a new line of work. Whether staying in one field or moving to another, advanced training and education need to be a permanent part of life. Since this is a technological revolution, all of us need to adapt to a world dominated by high-tech devices and new advances in mechanization. Smartphones and computers are not just a portal to access our personal accounts on Facebook and Instagram, but they are tools that will make us sure that we stay relevant and literate in the new language of work. That means that as we work less, we will need to work differently. That brings me back around to our original thought experiment. Assuming the best, that environmental challenges are met, as technology managed to uh, allows us all, all of us to work less and less, and wise leaders and planners find ways for all of us to live peaceful, healthy, and dignified lives, what are you going to do with all of your newfound leisure time? When your life is not defined by your title, your position, or your profession, who will you be? We are being confronted by the ultimate question, what is the meaning of life? I was a fan of the original Bob Newhart show when Bob played a psychologist. He's begun to question his purpose in his career, and one day he runs into one of his mentors. The mentor says that after a lifelong quest, he has finally found the meaning of life, which he can sum up in one word, golf. Bob found the answer somewhat shallow, and now, no matter how much you love the game, you will too if you stop to think about it. This is in no way a hypothetical question, or one that people will have to face in some distant future. Millions of us already are already facing it in a reality that I can sum up in one word. Retirement. Many of the retirees I know are truly struggling. Some just simply refuse to quit working until they drop. Some who can afford to travel, at least they did pre-COVID. Some garden, tinker, go out and get, meet people for coffee. Many of them volunteer at very meaningful jobs. And yes, some golf. And now all of these things are great if they suit you. 
but I'll sidestep the big question. What's the meaning of life? Now, let me rephrase that. What is the meaning of your life? 400 years before Christ, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And yet we've been trying to avoid looking at the meaning of our lives for 2,500 years. Maybe now is the time to start. There is a timeless answer, it may seem simple, that will serve us no matter how many hours a day and how many days a week we are required to work. Whether we're working, just starting out on a job, or if we're retired. We find the meaning of life in giving it away. Giving it away to God and to others. As Jesus restated the great commandment, love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And love as Jesus uses it is giving, sacrificial love. Therein lies our eternal purpose and life's meaning. Now, your own personal task your own real job is to find out how to do that. It will mean examining your soul and establishing a relationship with God in whatever form that takes. It will mean looking at your life in your community, in your family, at work, and in the world as a whole. So go ahead. Let the machines take over. If you examine your life with relationship to God, they will never take over your soul. Thank you for joining me today. I hope that I've given you something to think about. I know the difficult search for meaning is always on my mind. And you are in my prayers. Please join me again 